You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 65. And today we're asking the question, what's the full story about just culture? Part two. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name is David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we normally ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. But like last week and next week as well, we're doing a short three-part series on Sydney Decker's book, Just Culture, to really get underneath um, Just Culture, a set of ideas and its application to safety. So thanks to the listeners who responded to last week's first episode on LinkedIn, and we'll address some of the comments and questions up front in this episode. So if you haven't listened to episode 64 yet, you might be coming a little bit cold, So, but you can hang around, and I'm sure the ideas that we're going to cover in the chapters uh, this week will um, will still make some sense anyway, but then you know, go back and look at last week as well. So Drew, last week we covered the core ideas of Just Culture that were presented in the preface of, of the book, and you gave us quite a good... Um, overview lesson on the the history and the origins of the just culture ideas in safety you know going back i suppose to the to the modern ideas with jim reason in the 1990s but as far back as you know the early 20th century and the advent of workers compensation insurance schemes and liability management by organizations so drew you'll be pleased to know that i've got my third edition of the book this week thanks to the speedy amazon delivery team and so today we're going to cover uh a couple of topics from a few chapters, one on retributive and restorative cultures, and we'll spend a bit of time talking about those, and then another on why do people break rules. But before we do that, should we talk about some of the comments and and questions online? Yes, let's. David, I have to say that I'm regretting having spent so long on the preface last week, given the size of the couple of chapters we're going to talk about today. One thing I hadn't appreciated was there's a lot of storytelling in the book and there were some new stories that he's added between the editions. I think every time he gets a new story about someone who's been treated badly by a just culture process, it goes into the book as an illustration of a particular point. Um, but yeah, let's get on to the uh, listener questions and comments. Um, the first one's an interesting one. Uh, we'll, we'll just give people's first name to avoid fully identifying them, but these are public comments, uh, mainly from LinkedIn. So Adam pointed us to a discussion by Daniel Kahneman talking about how regression to the mean has an interesting effect because if we reward people for doing really well, they tend to sort of fall back towards average and it looks like our rewarding has failed. Whereas if we punish people for doing really poorly, they return towards average and it looks like our punishing has succeeded. So we have a bit more of an inclination then to see punishment as effective than to see reward as effective. Your thoughts, David? Yeah, we did that episode on um, reward schemes, Drew. You might recall there was that um, outside of safety, that example of the university study where students were given um, awards for attendance and they tended to attend less after they received that award. They went, oh, I'm, I'm doing too much. I, I, um, I, I can afford to slacken off a little bit and um, still pass this course. I hadn't really thought about it fitting in the context of just cultures because it was sort of, you know, again, an individual behavior level. And a lot of times we're talking about learning, we're talking about system-wide learning. So 
I really didn't know how to fit it in, Drew, but um, you, you made an interesting reply on LinkedIn. What were, what were your thoughts? I, I don't know how deeply we should go in. I, I, guess, I guess the main point of the comment was just that how focusing on outcomes can blind us to the processes generating those outcomes. And your typical example is that, you know, just because your team scores more points last week than this week doesn't mean your team's got worse. If your team did lots of points, then of course, on average, they're going to get worse rather than better. But that doesn't mean that they've suddenly started playing worse. And the sort of analogy is that in workplace accidents, we need to be very careful that we're not punishing the outcomes because it could be that we've got two identical processes. One of those people ends up in the accident and they're the one who gets punished because they're the one who gets brought to the attention of the just culture process. So yeah, that, that was my only thought there, David. Yeah, I think that outcomes is, is, is really interesting, Drew. Um, I like the way you frame that. And that probably gets us off to the next uh, comment, which is when are people really, really blameworthy? There's just no other option. There's nowhere else to look and there's really nothing to do other than just to blame the person for what they've done. And Tanya mentioned a discussion that had happened on one of Todd Conklin's um, friends of the, friend of the show, his uh, pre-accident investigation podcast. I didn't listen to the episode, Drew, and I, I think you haven't as well. But I think the general idea there was that finding examples of where people have done things that are so bad that they absolutely deserve harsh consequences. This is this idea of reckless violation, like there's just no point doing anything else than, um, than blaming the person. Uh, Drew, your thoughts on on that? We touched on this a little bit last week. I think I hit you just out of the blue with the question to see how you'd react. I, I personally don't like trying to make arguments about what's a good system from extreme cases. And I think I said that in a la the last episode, that you know, even if there were people that we should be punishing, it doesn't make sense to optimize our processes for dealing with those real corner cases. If our purpose is to make a better workplace then we need a system that for most people, most of the time, it's doing a good job. Even if there are people who slip through the cracks, rather than systematically getting it wrong for most people, just to make sure that we catch that one bad apple who really deserves to be caught. Um, but I also think, and again, I, I haven't listened to David Marks on this podcast, so I don't know about the particular examples he was giving. But I'm aware of the general strategy of pointing out these people who are just so obviously blameworthy that they defeat the idea of a blame-free culture or a restorative culture. And I think that the more extreme you case make the cases, the more self-defeating the argument is. If someone is really that bad, well, that's why we have a real justice system. We live in a society that has courts. It has criminal liability if you are negligent and you hurt other people. It has civil liability if you're negligent and you hurt other people. If there really are people who are so blatantly bad that they're threatening the lives of other people through their reckless behaviour, and it is so unquestionably obvious that it's their fault and not some systematic problem, then why are we trying to, through our company safety processes, trying to deal with these people? I think, Drew, that's, and I think we'll come back to this idea about designing for, um, for, for an extreme case as opposed to designing for something that maximises the performance of your process day in and day out. And finally, I suppose on the on the listener comments, James, he sort of asked us explicitly to say that there's lots of other, there's more influences on the decision than maybe just what the organisation or the manager might want to do in a particular situation and suggesting that there's external parties, maybe regulators, and I assumed and read into the comment, you know, clients, if you're a contractor and so on, and they, they all impact and frame these decisions about, you know, 
just culture and retributive justice and 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 what to do. And I can see how some of that applies, but also James makes a comment about industrial manslaughter and, and backward looking accountability and suggesting that regulators are more interested in in this retributive style. And you know, maybe they are, but they're doing it because they believe that that style of of approach will actually create forward-looking prevention based on fear and deterrence. So they're still trying for forward forward-looking accountability. They're just going about it in in a different way to what Sid would promote, which is something that's restorative. One of our PhD candidates, Derek Hegarty, has published a little bit about this, and he's got a lot more to say about it in some upcoming work that's still under peer review and in his uh, thesis to be submitted shortly. And he's, he has got a number of examples of external pressure, not just from regulators, but also from clients and principal contractors affecting the ability of organizations who want to reform their investigation and just culture processes, but are unable to do so because of that external pressure. I'm personally disappointed with anyone who uses that as an argument for their own system. You know, I, I think it's very true that that definitely happens. But I think that if you're claiming to have a just culture system, and then when you're challenged on it, your reason is, yeah, well, I know it's not a just culture system, but I have to do it because the regulator makes me or because the client makes me, then let's not pretend that we're trying to be fair and just. We're trying to set up a system to protect us from legal liability. Let's not call that a just culture. Um, you know, that, that's you know, 1984-style d- doublespeak. If we, if we think that the system is fair, then let's make it as fair as we can. If we're doing it because we have to do it, then let's admit that that's what we're doing and not pretend that we're doing it in order to be just. Yeah, Drew. Let's, so let's talk about these um, ideas of retributive, and they're called retributive just cultures and restorative just cultures. So I found that sort of interesting, you know, the labelling of both of them as just in some kind of way, but just in a different different style of, of justice, if you like, different philosophy of justice. And before chapter one, which is that the chapter on retributive and restorative cultures, Drew, there's a, there's a case study that's titled, When Does a Mistake Stop Being Honest? And what the point that Sydney's making in this is that there's no clear line that when someone crosses, which you can say, okay, no, this is really clearly in that category. And we're going to talk, I think, a few times today about if a system's really working, the line is clear, you know, for everyone in, in a consistent kind of way. Just before we dive into the detail of retributive culture, I, I think it's worth pointing out to our listeners the sort of overall shape of the argument that Sydney's making, because I think it's sort of a double-barreled thing. He's laying out these two systems which are both internally consistent. Um, you know, he doesn't say that a retributive system is illogical. He says it's got a logic to it. This is the logic. These are the steps that go towards completing the logic. But then his criticism is that he doesn't think that we actually implement retributive justice according to the principles of justice self-contained within that logic. So he thinks that you know if we were actually following retributive justice logic, then we'd be doing a number of other things that we don't do. And then his second argument is he thinks that even a good retributive system is not as good as a system that at the very least starts heading towards a restorative system. Um, and at least at this point of the book, he hasn't made an argument for removing retributive systems and replacing them with restorative. His argument is, look at where you are now, look at the advantage of, of restorative justice and move towards restorative within your current system. Yeah, I think Sydney's under no illusion that, and, and makes the comment in the book that a retributive style of justice is as old as humanity itself. It's like an eye for an eye, 
Like it's um, and, and I don't think he's making the claim that you know our our global societies and democracies are going to remove that style of justice. So I agree with you, Drew. I think he says there's a if there is a place. I think personally, knowing Sydney, he probably doesn't believe there is any place for it personally. But I think he practically accepts the fact that it's part of our society, but really wants people to do it according to the logic and the principles of how it should be done. I think when you follow that logic in the book, which we'll talk about today, and you think about your own um, organisation, you'll probably find that you, you're falling short on following the logic, even even if you've got a re- retributive process, which I imagine most organisations do. So David, you just want to take us through these sort of elements that make a just retributive justice system? Yeah, so Sydney lays it out in a couple of different ways throughout the chapter, within, and I hadn't seen um, since his third edition. I think this is slightly different to the second edition as well. But in a in a retributive system, Sydney's sort of saying that you go through a process of working out which rule was broken, who did it, how bad was what they how bad was it what they did, and therefore what does the person deserve and which other person gets to decide what should happen to that person. So they're kind of the five steps in the retributive process. And then the restorative process is is in a sense of rather than starting with which rule is broken, starts with, you know, who has been hurt. And what are the needs of those people who have been hurt? Uh, whose obligation is it to meet the needs of those people going forward? And then what role do others and the broader community and organisation play in learning and changing as a result of the event? So Sid points out that in, in practice, even though in the, I guess, real world, or at least in the criminal justice system, we're typically talking about guilty or not guilty. So it's a very hard line with a very high burden of proof. Within an organization, we're trying to distinguish between these different categories of behavior, and we're relying on the ability to draw a fairly clear line that everyone understands. If we draw that line successfully, then everyone, if they haven't done anything wrong, they've got nothing to worry about. And Sid sort of goes a number of times into this attitude of, you've got nothing to fear if you've done nothing wrong. So people are willing to admit mistakes, they're willing to be honest and open because they know that they haven't crossed that line because that line has been made clear. And the counter-argument to that that's built up over a number of examples and stories and arguments is is really saying that we never in real organisations achieve the point where anyone can be sure that they've done nothing wrong. And there are a few reasons for that. The biggest one being that when we talk about safety, we're not talking about elements of a typical criminal offence we're talking about things that in the criminal courts we'll be talking about negligence, which is all about meeting acceptable standards. Um, and that, that's a really hard thing to draw a fine line, draw clear lines about. Yeah, I found actually that linkage to the negligence process within the legal system um, is really helpful for me anyway to think about where that line should be because it talks about even with a robust and repeatable legal process, even with expert lawyers and barristers and judges, even with um, diligently and deliberately written legal frameworks and, and legal obligations, there's still these questions like, what is the normal standard? How far below was the action from that normal standard? What is reasonably skillful? What is reasonably care, reasonable care? What is prudent? You know, Was the harm actually caused by the negligent action or not? And these things get debated over and over again, and they get disagreed with by, you know, experienced and trained professionals. Yet in our organisations, we think there's um, three categories of of behaviours, 
an honest mistake in at-risk behaviour or a reckless behaviour, and we think that sitting down for 15 minutes with a human resources person, we can put something in a box that, you know, the, the parallel process in the legal system, you know, can't get anywhere near that, that sort of resolution. Now, th- this isn't an example that Sid uses, but since he uses lots of stories, I thought I'll just quick throw in an example of my own. We've on numerous episodes on the podcast talked about various aspects of risk assessment. We've talked about weaknesses with risk assessment. We've talked about times when they work well, times when they don't work well, what counts as a good risk assessment. Based on the best available evidence, I don't think I could go into an inquiry and say, you know what, there's a clear black and white answer as to whether the reasonable care standard is to do a risk assessment before you do an activity or not. But that's the sort of thing that we blame people for, is obviously they didn't care because they didn't complete a risk assessment. When the experts cannot agree with, they should have completed a risk assessment. And you, of course, afterwards, when they're hurt, we'd rather they didn't do the action and we'd love there to be a magical risk assessment that would have stopped them. But saying that that's, you know, the clear-cut acceptable standard is a really difficult line to draw. And I think the the discussion that we're having here now in, in different ways and coming out from different angles is when can it be considered appropriate to punish someone for their actions and, and what, what process needs to be around that and what expectations and, um, and sort of st- steps in that process need to be in place. And even, even in the retributive justice system about, you know, proportion, proportionate punishment needs to be in response to a clear and obvious sanctionable action. Like people need to know that this is the line, this is the behavior, this is what you can and can't do. You can't drive faster than this. You can't drive without a license. You can't perform this act to another person. And, you know, and, and these things, um, I don't think these things are the same things that exist within our within our organizations. And then just for fun, Sid throws in some substantive and procedural justice points that we definitely don't meet in our organizations. So, for example, the judge needs to be fair and impartial and can't be at all compromised through their own involvement in any of the decision-making that might have led up to the events that they are judging over. Uh, There has to be an opportunity for appeal, appeal both of the factual determinations and of the punishment that's been decided. There has to be an opportunity to present evidence and call witnesses for yourself. Those are all of the things that we normally expect when we're talking about a just system that gives us the right to punish people. Yeah, so this substantive justice, procedural justice. So, so I mean, it's it might be sounding like this is a, a very legal chapter, but it's actually quite an easy chapter to read. And it, it actually really made me at least think a lot at all the different angles to come at this and all of the uncertainty around, you know, what we typically would not think too much about doing inside our own organizations and and to say okay well this is fine we've got we've got a policy we've got a fair and just culture policy we've got sets of rules and those rules are really really clear they might even be called life-saving rules or golden rules we've communicated them we have a process that involves human resources people sit down they work it out and people you know get a proportionate discipline based on their actions so you know, that can feel like a very rational process to have in your organization. But I think this chapter will challenge, you know, will challenge the way that you think about those processes. Now, David, I know that some of our listeners at this point are going to be thinking that, yeah, we're talking about the difficulty in drawing the line and how hard it is and the processes that need to go around it. But surely there are cases that are clearly over the line. And everyone has at least heard of such cases, even if they don't know 
ones themselves that they can immediately point to. You know, no matter how grey the line is, there are some people who have obviously at various times stepped well over it, who have done things that are beyond that line, who even under a process that has all of that procedural fairness will still obviously have failed to meet a very clear standard. And I think it's really important to show that the whole point of this argument in the first place is not to say there do not exist people who under a fair system might deserve to be punished. The whole point is that the claim, remember, is that if we draw a clear line, then people will go into that process knowing that they haven't done anything wrong. So they're going to be open, they're going to report, they're going to disclose their own mistakes. And those won't be the people who have gone well over the line. Those are the people who are really close to the line. And so, you know, no number of cases that are very clear fixes the problem with the line itself being ambiguous if it's going to achieve our purposes. Yeah, and I think some people might think that they have that line clear and that line is drawn at the 1%, which is that there will be no consequences unless we decide that the action was known, was reckless and was right up there. So in the in the minds of management, in the minds of maybe some safety organisations, they've done that, Drew, they've opened everything else up, they've just put the line for that 1%. But I think unless people, and, and as we go deep inside organisations with some of the work that we do, is that that may be maybe in a manager's head, that may be very clear, but that hasn't been explained, not explained well enough to the work. The workers don't potentially believe that that's actually, they don't believe the um, substantive justice, they don't believe the procedural fairness, they don't believe that um, that's the way that the process is going to actually work. So it doesn't happen. David, I'm I'm willing to bet that, people who think that they've got a very clear line are also drawing that line somewhere around a concept of golden rules or critical controls or things that have been very clearly laid out and clearly explained to the workers are unacceptable behaviours. Now, I don't know if any of our listeners are sort of in that category or perhaps our listeners are having to make an argument to people who think that. I'm not going to claim, although I think I could truthfully claim, that your golden rules are being violated all over the place, and if you think not, you just don't know about them. What I will say is imagine the person who thinks that a golden rule has had to be violated, who thinks that there is an exception to the golden rule that needs to be talked about to make sure that appropriate controls are decided that are not the golden rule. How does that person start the conversation if the organisation has been so clear that even admitting that there might be times when the golden rules might not be followed means that you're crossing a very, very clear, bright line. And I think that's where, going back to you, which I didn't finish about the, the case study before chapter one, is that um, any time we're doing retributive justice and applying backward-looking accountability to behaviours, there is no clear line because it, it always depends on how the story gets told, which means like backward-looking accountability is always an uncertain and dangerous game because whose voice um, and whose story is, is going to be listened to so I suppose that's one of the arguments City makes for a restorative just culture and forward-looking accountability is that the best thing that the people who are involved in any kind of event or action, the best thing they can do on that very first day is teach the organisation exactly what happened and why they did what they did. So I think that's what you're, you're getting at, Drew, that um, those systems, putting any kind of downward pressure on that means that you are sort of compromising your opportunity to get that full story. This might be a good time to move on and talk about a bit of the detail of restorative cultures. 
As a starting point, I think it's worth indicating that restorative justice is not this airy-fairy hippie thing. It's it's a process that often has like very strictly defined rules and steps around it. And it's been used a lot, particularly in things like juvenile justice. And it's very, very hard for everyone concerned in the process. You, No one gets off easy just because it is restorative justice. You know, I've heard stories of people saying, you know, would, you, would you please just lock me up instead of making me have to sit down and talk to this person and tell them what I did and listen to their story? And look, I think we have, we have examples increasingly, at least in the Australian legal system, where companies can enter into um, enforceable undertakings to avoid um, prosecutions in, under the um, health and safety legal system. And an enforceable undertaking is exactly that. It's designed to be a forward accountability there's a there's a six or twelve or eighteen month plan of investment and action in relation to safety to make improvements to the organisation and improvements to the industry safety performance instead of going to court and paying a fine. So I mean, in some regards, Drew, just just thinking about it now, those that that you know regulatory process is a, is designed to be like a restorative process. Who's hurt? What are the needs of the people within this industry um, who might be second victims or, or others? Whose obligation is it? Well, it's the organisations. And, um, you know, what are they going to do going forward? And it might be retraining and contributing to industry body of knowledge and um, new technology and equipment and things like that. And I think, I don't know, Drew, would you see that as sort of a, an application of the restorative principles? Yes, it, it, it's, got, it's got its weaknesses and it's got its difficulties with how it's applied in practice. But yes, it's... It has a number of the elements of a restorative system. One of the big ones that Sydney emphasises that I think doesn't crop up there is Sydney emphasises a lot the importance of all stakeholders to share their stories with each other. So it starts right in the investigation process, not just in the consequences. And in particular, most ideas of restorative justice still incorporate this idea that there is an offender. At least there is someone who has done something that causes harm. But that that person is relabeled from an offender to being a second victim. So the first victim is the person or persons who have suffered consequences directly from the experience. Um, So in a workplace accident, they're the person who got hurt at work. The second victim is someone who feels responsible for the person getting hurt. Now, they could be responsible. They could just feel responsible. Anyone who, either as a result of the accident or as a result of what happens afterwards, feels some responsibility for what has happened. They are the second victims. And then there is a community, in this case, the organisation, who are part of the process as well. So all of those parties, the first victims, the second victims, and the community need to share their stories. And part of that is revealing the harm that they have suffered and putting on the table what they think needs to be done in order to repair that harm. So let's let's step through this, Drew. I like um, that. I'm, I'm just slightly wondering if all of our listeners will be still with us on um, restorative just cultures, because I think sometimes people think that restorative just culture is um, and you've done a great job of explaining um, some of the, the clear logic around it. And and I just want to be clear that a restorative just culture is not just what people might think the opposite of a retributive just culture. 
which is that, you know, there's no individual that's held accountable. And, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. And there's no consequences um, of any kind. And it's just, you know, people can do anything and it's a blame-free environment and life goes on no matter what the person does. So maybe I'll start with a definition, Drew. And the definition of a restorative just culture is a process where all stakeholders affected by an injustice have an opportunity to discuss how they've been affected by this injustice and then to decide what should be done to repair the harm. So this is, like you're saying, Drew, a very collective process with these first, second victims and the organisational community more broadly. And David, I think you make a very important point there in that definition, which is this actually comes from the same assumption as a retributive justice system in that there is an assumption that there has been an injustice. So, you know, the starting point for this whole process is someone got hurt and that's not okay. Um, And in order to know who gets involved in the process, we've got to identify the people who caused that hurt because we've got to make them involved in the process. So we're, we're still saying, you know, this accident has happened. We're still saying these are the people who caused the accident. These are the people who suffered from the accident. And we're getting them around a table to talk about what do we do next. Yeah, and I think in a real practical setting, if someone gets injured, say, some sort of release of energy in some um, major hazard facility, and then you you think, you know, they're the first victim, they're the one who's been injured. And then when we think about the second victim, the people who feel responsible, it could be work colleagues, it could be the immediate supervisor, it could be the maintenance engineer that did or didn't do something with that system, it could be the permit to work officer who maybe didn't check something, it could be the safety person who didn't review that particular risk assessment the day before. So you get all of these stakeholders in and around associated with the activity who suffer and, and feel responsible and want to contribute to... Um, making things better and if your investigation process just is retributive it'll just find the person who gets hurt it might find an immediate connection with that person assign some some punishment and you know the process moves forward and all the people don't have the opportunity to move forward so so, so there are two things that come out of this that decker thinks are very important the first one is that this simply telling and listening to the stories is a positive process in itself and can work to reduce the total amount of harm that is experienced. One of the challenges of most investigations, regardless of whether they're retributive, is they tend to need to coalesce around a single version of the facts. They tend to need to sort of find out what did happen, because they need to assign consequences for what did happen. And the result of that is that anyone whose story differs from that final version is someone who, from their point of view, has not been heard. Their version's been dismissed, it hasn't been included in that final account. The restorative process doesn't need that because it doesn't need to coalesce around an agreed version of what happened. All we need to agree on is what is the harm and what are we going to do next. So everyone's story can be accepted even if they contradict, even if they don't quite disagree. Sorry, even if they don't quite agree. Nick has got this neat little rhetorical thing. He says that in a retributive just culture, an account is something that you pay. In a restorative just culture, an account is something that you tell and you learn through the dialogue. So this claim, we may as well get to this this, this key claim about um, that neither a retributive or restorative just culture, as Sidney says in his book, lets people off the hook. So this is not about, um, I don't think in my mind that we talk anywhere about blame free. I mean, blame as a word, but we we are trying to, like you say, understand the the act, understand the hurt, understand the people involved, and understand what to do next. So in we um 
Sid sort of flicks back to retributive cultures and says, okay, so in a retributive culture, we want to know how the person compensates for what they've done. They meet, we meet hurt with hurt. So someone's caused some hurt to another person. So the system causes hurt to that person. And people feel that the person was held accountable. They feel satisfied that the person was held accountable because they were punished. And this is a way of the community demonstrating to others that it doesn't accept what the person did. So to counteract this common claim that in restorative cultures, there's sort of no accountability, Sydney argues that no, no, no. In restorative cultures, what we do is, is, um, we start with how do others understand why it made sense for the person to do what they did and how could others be put in the same situation um, in the future? And that offenders are not seen as the causes of trouble, but they're the recipients of organisational or operational or design or other structural and systemic issues. And these could set others up for failure as well, if not addressed. So restorative cultures, you know, therefore are more likely to get to some of these systemic issues um, that triggered the incident. People get to tell their account and express remorse. Um, so, so people can actually go through that conciliatory process of expressing the remorse for, for what's happened. And then, like um, you'd, we'd mentioned, Drew, the affected people can agree what needs to be done to not only move the system or the organisation forward, but also to restore trust and relationships and, um, and other aspects of the social fabric of the organisation as well. And the final point is that, you know, the community demonstrates that it expects people to be accountable by getting them to reflect on their behaviour, share their insights and con- contribute to the benefits for others. David, I'd like to touch here a little bit on the idea of backwards versus forward accountability. That, that's the language that Decker and people often use is that retributive justice is about backwards accountability, restorative justice is about forward accountability. Um, and we had a comment from James suggesting that maybe forward accountability is really just a bit of a rhetorical trick, that you know ultimately all accountability is backward and if we talk about forward accountability we're really just delaying backward accountability. Now, I, I think that's a fair point, and I think it's something that does arise when we don't get our justice process right. Um, so you could imagine a circumstance where we have a very blame-free type system that's moving towards restorative, where someone makes a mistake and their forward accountability is, I'm not going to do that again. So, And then next time they've done it, we then punish them for it. So that would be a good example of where we were trying to be forward accountable, but really all we were doing was delaying backward accountability. I think what's expected under a good restorative justice system is much more specific in its accountabilities than we have with backward accountability. Um, So there are a few particular things that you need to do to meet your obligations. And I think I personally prefer obligations to accountability anyway, because, yeah, I, I just think it's a clearer term. So you're, you're obliged to take part in the process. That's a clear expectation of you. And I think it is a fair expectation. It's an expectation that you can meet. If you are not willing to engage in the process, if you're not willing to share your story about not willing to talk about what happened, then you're not willing to take part in restorative justice. And you very often when people are not willing to participate in restorative justice, we're forced to switch to retributive justice. I mean, I think that's actually fair enough if people you decline to take part, there's not much we can do about it. Um, But the other thing is that the process creates actions in the same way that an investigation creates actions. And those actions get assigned to the stakeholders who have participated. And if you think about typical recommendations from an investigation that's done well, this is much more specific. We're not saying live up to a standard. 
we're saying as a result of this, you promised that you would attend toolbox talks and tell your story to other people. I think that sort of accountability is a much fairer and easier to meet accountability than a promise not to make the same mistake. Yeah, I, I agree, Drew. And I suppose my, I mean, I must admit when you started then, I didn't quite follow the whole is the forward looking accountability just delayed backward accountability. I sort of found myself in an infinite loop there for a little bit, but the more you explained it, the more I sort of caught on. The way that I practically think about this is that if you've got a retributive system and so so something's happened and the individual um, involved in the action receives some kind of punishment, I can't practically in my head work out how in any way that you've made safety better in the future. So, I mean, you might say, well, that person has been on a final warning, so maybe they'll behave a little bit better. And you might say, okay, yeah, okay. And, and other people will see that that person got a warning or a dismissal and maybe they'll behave better for a day or an hour. But the, the, the impacts on reporting and openness and trust and relationships and climate and all of those things, I just, I just can't find how that system makes the organization safer. But unlike you, the practical side of restorative just culture is about going through the process that we've described and then, and then with hopefully the work group together, just say, okay, so where is the line around this activity? It might be someone's done something without isolating a piece of equipment and that's a, some sort of rule. And so getting all of the stakeholders involved and going, you know, what are the boundaries around this activity? How is this work going to be performed in the future? You know, how are we going to talk about it when work is different and, and unable to be this? You know, what are the shared expectations of each other? Then I think you've got a really clear priority line around that activity, a really clear social contract with, with everyone involved. And you've actually got quite a really solid and specific accountability for the work going forward. Um, and a lot of openness and trust and, and alignment. So I suppose that's how I practically see it, Drew. I'm not sure how clearly that aligns with the logic, but that's how I've always thought about it practically. David, I think that makes sense. And my only point of discomfort is I think that's what people sometimes think they're doing when they identify critical controls and when they identify golden rules, is they think they've been through that process. They have actually agreed expectations and made those expectations clear. And so that is the same sort of forward accountability that you're talking about. But, but I think it's the opportunity to honestly and openly share stories that goes into that process after an incident where we have good restorative processes that lets that be a much more reasonable expectation that we're placing on people. And you know, too often I've heard... I've heard some people say, like, we've carefully thought about these golden rules. We've only put in place the things that we all agree are absolutely right. And the CEO has then come onto the stage and said, right, the, these, this is the law. And you realise that you know, what some people think is a fair process actually has a real power imbalance in it. Yeah, and I, I suppose that my example was a little bit um, narrow in the sense of all of the assumptions that were in my mind around around that process. But yeah, I can understand how the next argument could have been well, someone's done something they shouldn't have and now they've been told not to do it. And then a week later when they do it again, you know, that's that's the time to be retributive. And um, that's kind of not what I was trying to describe, but I was trying to just get a little bit practical with the with the example. Drew, I suppose, is there anything else you want to say about restorative and retributive cultures? It's kind of like a it's if you if you pick up this book and it is an it is a rewritten or it's a basically a, it might even be a new chapter in the third edition. Read the chapter. It's a it is a really useful um chapter to read if you don't read any of the rest of the book. Anything else you want to say about it? No, the only thing I'd say is that if you don't want to pick up the book, there's uh, one that's fairly easy to find versions of online called The Little Book of Restorative Justice, 
which is just gives a different account of those same principles of what is restorative justice and how it works. Um, if you want to learn about it without reading Sydney Decker, should we move on to the next chapter, David? Um, I, I know we're running a little bit short on time, but we each took about ten pages of notes on that previous chapter, and I think we've got less than one between us on the next one because we just said, "Yeah, yeah, we've read all this before." Joe, I didn't know. I, I'm still not sure. Um, so the, the chapter is titled "Why Do People Break Rules?" It comes after the re- re- retributive and restorative, and and I suppose I think we I think our episode two. Drew had almost the identical title, save one word, about why do people break rules. This isn't the most comprehensive description of the issue. And I think that Sydney is really, all he's trying to do is simply make one point that rule following is not black and white. So if you get through the retributive and restorative chapter and Sydney's a bit worried that you say, yeah, 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 but for these life-saving rules that are black and white, it's fine for us to have a retributive system. And for anything else that's grey will, of course, always be restorative. And I think what Sydney's trying to do with this chapter that comes after is go, well, hang on a minute. If that's what you're thinking when you've just read about retributive justice, let me just tell you how what you think are black and white rules are probably anything but black and white rules for all of these reasons. David, I think that is a fair characterization of the entire message of the chapter. I personally think that once you've gone through all of these different theories, and I agree that it's not comprehensive, but there are still sort of six different theories that Sid includes in there. And I think he endorses five out of the six. One of them, by the way, is the bad apple theory, that people are bad or incompetent. And I think he is pretty dismissive of that one. But all of the rest of them, he thinks, have some truth to them. And the more and more you read about how humans behave and how they make sense of rules and how they learn from their environments, the less and less you think that free will exists. And I mean... There is a real risk that you go too far down there. I think this is one thing that makes people a bit sceptical of this type of argument, is that there's a point where you start seeing everything as structural influences and say, well, humans aren't responsible for their own actions at all. It's entirely determined by external things. But I think the other way of looking at it is, okay, sure, we accept that humans are responsible for what they do, but if they're responsible for it, then we don't have much control over that part that they are responsible for. What we have control over is all of those structural influences that cause them to behave in particular ways. And so there's not much we can do to influence someone's own choices, but there's a lot that we can do to influence the processes and environment around them. And I think I think you're exactly right, Drew. I think um, you, you're right. You can get and we see this sometimes with investigations where organisations, you know, really try hard not to pay any attention to what the ind- the individual's contribution and try to look at the organisational factors and stay only in the organisational factors and sort of overcompensating that space, even though most companies probably don't do the structural things enough. But the way that I see it is that there's always freedom of action. So there's always a, f- I would like to say always, always is a bit of a bold statement, but I'd like to think that most of the time there's a final say that the individual has. But those structural forces, I suppose, create the freedom of action that that person has in that final choice. So these are all the pressures and all the structural presses. And and how big is that? You know, how, how wide and where placed is that freedom of action? Is it just a choice between two bad situations or is it actually a, you know, a broadly set of safe choices that they can make? David, I think you've said this before, and I don't know if you're willing to stand by it at this point, but to the extent that this comes down to the actual individual it's our job to get our hiring processes right that we don't hire those people. If we've had someone who we have hired and thought they were right for the job and have have not got rid of them for any other performance-related reasons, 
kept them in the organization and our one chance to decide that they are just so bad that they are fundamentally a bad egg is after an accident, then there's a lot of our own HR processes that just aren't up to scratch. Yeah, look, and I think they're structural processes. Like I've, I've sort of said that, uh, I think I've said, I'm not sure I'm not sure on the podcast, but you know, you've got, you've got a whole lot of people management processes in your organization that, um, that select and, and, um, and manage and and develop and um and monitor your organization you know your people in your organization and support them and you don't need to fix all of those processes with your safety investigation process in fact you know you, you that's not that's not the place to fix all of those things should we should we talk a little bit about going forward where we're headed yeah let's do that so so i think we didn't talk about rules with that chapter and you can pick it up and read it and and that but i think that, that black and white thing is that just be careful when you think that your rules are black and white. And, and this chapter lays out all the reasons, all the all the reasons why they may not be as as, as well. People, not everyone in your organisation might see them the way that you might see them. So Drew, we're gonna we're gonna bounce forward to next week and cover the remaining three chapters together. Um, I put them three for next week, like safety reporting and honest disclosure, the criminalisation of human error, and what's the right thing to do. Because I'm not sure some of the some of the criminalisation aspects and a few things. I'm not sure that we may not find all of it interesting to discuss but we'll round out the book uh the book next week so so practical takeaways david i think the easiest way is just to talk about what sid's takeaways are and then make a few comments along the way if you've got them great yeah so sid sid gives enough his, his takeaways are sort of in the form of questions to ask yourself and to ask about your organization so if you're in an organization and you've got a retributive justice system and you think it is a just system then he says ask yourself is the judge independent? Because a f- just retributive system requires the judge themselves to be impartial. But also, does the judge know enough about the messy details of how work usually happens? Because you're asking the judge to draw a line between what's acceptable and not acceptable. To do that, they've got to know what's normal. They can't be working off some imaginary standard. Is there an opportunity for appeal? This is to do with you claiming to have substantive justice. And then he said, is the whole process designed and advertised clearly, including all the rights of someone in the process? And he doesn't say it, but I would add to that one, do we always follow the process that we have designed and advertised clearly? Because I know a lot of organisations have things like the person involved in the accident will always be included in the investigation. But when we go back and audit who was actually in the meetings, we discover, oh, we let that person go. So they were fired before they had a chance to be the person participating in the meetings. So we make the promises sometimes without living up to them. Yeah, Drew, I think um, I think they're great questions to ask, and I think they're very hard to think about in practice. Um, sorry, they're very people will find. I suspect that people will find that their processes fall a little bit short, and closing that gap will be very problematic. Andrew, so there's a there's a set of questions that that I might get you run through about if you think you're moving towards restorative process, or you think you might be doing some of those things. Um, there's a set of questions about how restorative you are. Do you want to run through those? Yeah, I think these are actually a little bit easier. I, th- I think some of those questions about retributive justice are a little bit gotcha questions that you're very likely your answer is going to be no, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But I think a lot of these restorative ones, you can say, well, maybe we're not, but we could try more. So the first one is, does the process recognize harms, needs, and causes? And that's almost something that you can add into any process is just add in a bit of thought about like who has actually been harmed, particularly thinking about first and second victims. Uh, second one is, is the process adequately victim-oriented, including second victims? 
So, you know, who do we consult? Do we think about what their experience is like in this process? Are we taking care of them throughout the process? Um, are practitioners encouraged to realise their own contribution to the harm? David, I actually quite, couldn't quite get, when he said practitioners here, do you think he was talking about safety practitioners or just... No, I mean, I don't think specifically. I don't think, Drew, I don't think that um, Sydney really ever worries too much about the safety practitioner. But I think at other times it might even be a substitution for professionals because normally he's talking about professionals here, um, like people in their professional roles, like managers, engineers and, and other people. So I think what we're talking about here is like you made the comment about maybe even last week about how often do you see an accident investigation report where there's a finding or a recommendation about what the safety team did or didn't do that might have contributed. So I think this part of the process here is really about encouraging all potential practitioners and professionals associated with the work to realise and, and, and reflect on their own possible contribution to the situation. And I think this also hints towards whether we've achieved the type of process that we imagine we have. Because in a truly just process, people should be stepping forward and volunteering and saying, yeah, I recognise that I could have done better. An accident happened and I've got something to do with that instead of everyone keeping their heads down and hoping that someone else has the just culture process applied to them. Yeah, and think about the power of an organisation. If, if all of those people in all of those related roles reflected and then came forward um, and told their story and, and, and thought about what they might do in a sort of a forward accountability type of way. So the remaining points is, are all relevant stakeholders involved? So this is about broadening that circle of people, not just who are witnesses, but who are actively involved in the investigation, in the decision making. And then how do we involve them? Is it based on dialogue, participation and collaborative decision making? So a key thing there is to look for whether the actual process is you know, making recommendations up to a single decider or whether the decisions are made by the group of people. Uh, does it identify and address deeper systemic issues that contributed? That's a bit of an outcome-focused one that could be true, I think, of any process, but is always sort of worth asking, you know, whatever our process is, do we routinely actually find and address deeper systemic issues? And is the process respectful to everyone involved? That, that respect is something that we often don't necessarily think about. But just, you, just that attitude of going into it with respect, I think, can significantly improve investigations and reduce the harm that they can sometimes cause. And I think, Drew... I agree with you. I like the way you framed at the very start this idea of Sydney, I don't think, is practically saying get rid of all your retributive justice and and do restorative justice kind of overnight. And I like the way you said it's sort of moving towards these principles. So even if you look at any of your your organisational responses to events, and I'm not sort of talking about, you know, the, the, the disciplinary consequence, but the whole system of of reporting and investigating and managing unwanted actions or unwanted outcomes. I mean, we still work with organisations that make the people involved sign statutory declarations of witness statements. And I mean, if you ask the question of, is it based on dialogue, participation and collaborative decision making, is it respectful to people involved? You're probably not going to have someone sit across the table and say, can you write and sign your version of events on this statutory declaration and then never see them again? So I think there's a lot you can do within your existing incident management processes based on kind of these restorative principles that we've talked about today that's at least going to make your investigation process more effective, even if you don't really touch what you do from a disciplinary point of view or a punitive point of view. And David, you've added at the end of these sort of two sets of questions a meta question because they sort of assume that you're either currently retributive or trying to be restorative. And you've just got to note that if you're not doing one of the two, then you might be doing something that's unjust. Yeah, it was only that I hadn't seen it before, the nuance in the writing where um, 
I was always of the view that the idea of just culture was restorative. But there's a subtlety, and I don't know whether you agree with me, Drew, where Sydney's talks about retributive just cultures and restorative just cultures, like actually using those words. And it was only when I saw that the just culture associated with the retributive thing saying that is a system of justice, um, that retributive cultures, but it's this is the logic it and the restorative is a system of justice. Now, I don't know whether Sydney means for it to be kind of just just culture and do one or the other, but whatever you're doing, make it just, even though he'd prefer you to do restorative. But what I said is if you're not following the logic of either of those two just culture approaches, then you are likely to be doing something in your organisation that is very unjust to your people. Yeah, so, so I guess the idea of having a just culture only emerged relatively recently. And so there will be organisations who haven't deeply thought at all about the fairness or justice of their investigation processes. And, and it's a natural sort of first step that when people start thinking about this, they read the works of reason or David Marks or things that are derived from their ideas and end up in this retributive just culture model of classifying errors into different types of culpability and deciding proportional responses. And this was always my uh, my misinterpretation, Drew. I always misinterpreted people who said we've got a just culture and I was always going, well, you don't because it's not restorative. But then I only realised that, well, actually, Reason's original work was nothing about restorative just culture. Reason's original work was actually trying to get the retributive systems of justice to be more just. Yes, absolutely. So late to the party, but, you know, that's all right. I learn something, something every week. So I guess that's it for the episode. We've gone a little bit long, but that's okay. Please do share your thoughts and questions with us on LinkedIn. Definitely based on when we're recording, we'll have time to see your responses before we get the next episode recorded. There's also a link in our LinkedIn header. So if you go to the podcast on LinkedIn, if you go to the Safety of Work page, uh, you can link through to an online portal where you can suggest and vote for future episode topics. We're at that sort of point where we're about to decide the next few episodes what topics we're going to cover. So please do hop on there if you've got some ideas and either put your ideas or vote for the ideas that are there and we'll try to comply. And there's a lot of votes for life-saving rules and critical risk management. And there's not a lot of um, empirical work in, in the safety science literature. So still looking, but uh, coming up with donuts at the moment in, in some of those areas that we know lots of people want to hear about, but we'll keep, we'll keep trying. So if you're out there and you're thinking of doing a PhD in safety, <laughs> yeah. Well-designed well designed research in some of these. Yeah, we've, yeah, no, look, if we've got some students or some aspiring researchers, we're probably getting close to having a bit of an idea about where some of the really useful gaps in the literature might be if anyone's putting a research agenda together. So that's it for this week, True. We hope you all found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 